So um, we've got another kind of neat little passage to look at today, but it's not uncontroversial. Um, so I'll start by reading it out. It is Acts chapter 4, verses, tw- uh, verses 32 to 37. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Uh, Now you might be thinking, like I was when I first read this passage, doesn't this sound a little bit familiar? And haven't we talked about something really similar to this just recently? And that's because we have in fact looked at some of these themes not very long ago, when Charles spoke on um, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So in that passage it said, And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So I don't know if you remember that. Um, Charles spoke in it, and I think my takeaway from that preach was when he said, if I have it and you need it, it's yours. And that really gave me some food for thought. So why would Luke, who writes Acts, why would he repeat this part about the believers sharing everything they had so soon after writing about it the first time. One reason is simply that repeating something emphasizes it. It draws our attention to it, and repeating something means that you're more likely to remember it, that you're more likely to notice it. And Luke obviously thought that that point, that this point here, bid repeating, and that it really deserves our attention. Now, Tom Wright, whose book we're following, Um, He explains that what Luke is trying to draw attention to is the fact that this behavior on the part of the early believers mirrors something which God spoke about in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4 to 11. This passage in Deuteronomy comes just after God commanded a year of jubilee. And that is when every seventh year people would cancel each other's debts. They didn't have to pay them back anymore. And the chapter goes on to say, There should be no poor among you, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing if you are careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. You will lend money to many nations, but will never need to borrow. You will rule many nations, but they will not rule over you. 
But if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year of cancelling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So Deuteronomy said, there should be no poor among you, and Act says, there were no needy people among them. As Tom Wright explains in this statement, Luke is claiming that the believers were the covenant community in whom the promises of God were coming true. The kingdom of God was starting to be released on earth and his will was being done on earth as it is in heaven. So apparently this is God's plan and it was always God's plan. Generosity, sharing, unity in community on all levels. Now, one of the first things I noticed when I read this uh, passage that we're looking at today is that it begins by telling us that the believers were united in heart and mind, but this unity doesn't stop there. It spills out into the practical, into real life. As a friend of mine used to say, love looks like something. We might quite like the unity of heart and mind bit. We might not like that bit. But in practical matters, and in financial matters, unity and sharing may seem a bit more controversial. But that is what Luke is talking about here. And he thought it was important enough to include it twice in the first four chapters of Acts. So we have to wrestle with this and get to the bottom of what it meant for the apostles and what it means for us today. Now, I've often heard people quote uh, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, uh, when he says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I've heard people use this quote to kind of, as kind of an excuse for not having to give to the poor, and that there might be other more important things to use your money for. It can be used to kind of downplay the importance of the needs of the poor and of giving to the poor. But it's really interesting that in this passage in Deuteronomy it says, there will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So the reasoning here is, there will always be poor among us, so I expect you to do something about it. I think that Acts also introduced some interesting questions about what a church does with its money. You know, in this example, the money that the financially stable members of the congregation bring to the church is given into the hands of the apostles and they use it to support the needy members of the community. And this is something that fears thinking about. Now, something that's always been part of my journey with God is to be challenged to think, what if what the Bible says is actually true? What does that mean for us? And what does that look like? What if healing is real? What if miraculous provision is real? What if what Jesus says about sin is real? 
What happens if it's true that the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first? What if it is in fact better to give than to receive? So I guess the question here today is, what if this kind of community is what is expected of us and is what is available to us? Now it is worth saying that the people who sold their houses and land in this passage, they did it voluntarily. There was no law about this. And most of the apostles did seem to have their own homes because it talks in the Bible about them meeting in each other's homes a lot. So making this kind of financial sacrifice isn't something we have to do. But at the same time, there are exemplary people in the Bible who did this, like Barnabas, who was also called the son of encouragement. What I find really interesting when I read passages like this is that I can just feel the swell of excuses rising up in me, of common sense, of logical reasoning. It rises up in me. And there's definitely a time to be prudent and cautious with money. It's not about throwing your money on whatever you want or away. But wouldn't you love to be like Barnabas? So open, so caring, and so trusting in God that he just goes for it. Hang common sense. I find it quite interesting, and I notice this in myself, that many people insist that the miracles of the early church are still available today. And that's good, and that's true. But what about the obedience of the early church? What about the sacrifice of the early church? What about the single-minded simplicity of the early church? Are they still available for us today too? Are we seeking them with as much passion? Are we as interested in all the aspects of the kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Because some aspects of the kingdom of God are even more countercultural and more upside down than others. I've talked about it already. I've mentioned this book a couple of times already. Um, but it's having a big effect on me. Uh, and it, it's this um, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's really, really challenging on every level. And there's a chapter on simplicity. And when I read it, I wasn't expecting it to be about money and possessions, to be honest. Um, but Richard Foster, he really anchors living simply in this practical way. So I'd love to read out a little bit of what he writes. I hope you don't mind, because I think it really brings up some interesting questions. Prepare yourself. Before attempting to forge a Christian view of simplicity, it is necessary to destroy the prevailing notion that the Bible is ambiguous about economic issues. Often it is felt that our response to wealth is an individual matter. The Bible's teaching in this area is said to be strictly a matter of private interpretation. We try to believe that Jesus did not address himself to practical economic questions. No serious reading of scripture can substantiate such a view. The biblical injunctions against the exploitation of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and straightforward. The Bible challenges nearly every economic value of contemporary society. 
For example, the Old Testament takes exception to the popular notion of an absolute right to private property. The earth belongs to God, says scripture, and therefore cannot be held perpetually. The Old Testament legislation of the year of Jubilee stipulated that all land was to revert back to the original owner. In fact, the Bible declares that wealth itself belongs to God, and one purpose of the year of Jubilee was to provide a regular redistribution of wealth. Such a radical view of econ economics flies in the face of nearly all contemporary belief and practice. Had Israel faithfully observed the Jubilee, it would have dealt a death blow to the perennial problem of the rich becoming richer and the poor becoming poorer. Jesus declared war on the materialism of his day, and I would suggest that he declares war on the materialism of our day as well. The Aramaic term for wealth is mammon, and Jesus condemns it as a rival god. No servant can serve two masters, for either he would hate the one and love the other, or he would be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. He speaks frequently and unambiguously to economic issues. He says, blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And woe to you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. He graphically depicts the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God to be like a camel walking through the eye of a needle. With God, of course, all things are possible, but Jesus clearly understood the difficulty. He saw the grip that wealth can have on a person. He knew that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Which is precisely why he commanded his followers, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He is not saying that the heart should or should not be where the treasure is. He is stating the plain fact that wherever you find the treasure, you will find the heart. He exhorted the rich young ruler not just to have an inner attitude of detachment from his possessions, but literally to get rid of his possessions if he wanted the kingdom of God. He said, take heed and beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He counseled people who came seeking God, sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. He told the parable of the rich farmer whose life centered in hoarding. We would call him prudent. Jesus called him a fool. He states that if we really want the kingdom of God, we must, like a merchant in search of fine pearls, be willing to sell everything we have to get it. He calls all who follow him to a joyful life of carefree unconcern for possessions. Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And he goes on. The man does not pull his punches. And what I found when I read this, he's quite well respected, Richard Foster. This is the kind of book you find in every single Christian bookshop. And I just thought, has everyone read this? I thought, have the people who preach prosperity gospel read this? Now, I'm really not speaking from a place of superiority on this. Um, but I know that this is an aspect of the Bible that we can often shy away from. The way that we think about money is so ingrained in our culture that we don't even question it half the time. We think it's idealism to question it. But we can't deny that the Bible has a very different take on money and possessions than our own. 
we really think about it, is what we call common sense with money, simply playing by the world's rules, rather than following the mysterious ways of the kingdom. Do we trust God and his word? Do we trust him more than we trust ourselves? Now, again, I want to I stress I'm not an expert on this at all, but it is something God's challenging me about at the moment. But, and I do, I want the kingdom to come. And I want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that starts in my life, and it means that I need to change. The problem is that we can't pick and choose the parts of the kingdom that we want. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we must follow him wherever he leads us. But something that I really love about God is that he doesn't lead us from a distance. He walks with us where we are at, and he doesn't expect us to be perfect right now. But he's always leading us into more depth and more maturity and more spiritual riches. It's not about feeling guilty about where we're not, but about doing what is in front of us and trying to be sensitive to his leading. And the point is that he's always trying to lead us into something better. He doesn't want us to just give things up on earth. He wants us to have the riches in heaven that last forever. One last thought I'd love to share with you is from this other book that I keep talking about, Dirty Glory, by Pete Gregg. And I just love what he says about money. This section comes straight after this really crazy miracle where this woman is, uh, feels like she's supposed to move to a new area because God's asked her to. She doesn't have the money, and the money appears in her cupboard. <laughs> but this is what he says. Um, so Susanna is the lady whose uh, cupboard gave her some money. Susanna told me these stories, and I confess that I checked my own cleaning cupboard on more than one occasion. The 24-7 movement had significant financial challenges at the time, and I couldn't understand why God didn't just make the money materialize for us, the way he'd made it for Susanna. But as I thought about this, he taught me one of the most important lessons I have ever learned about money. The fact that God can create banknotes supernaturally at will means that when he chooses not to do so, which, let's face it, is pretty much always, it is because he wants to provide for us in another way. Generally, God prefers to bless us through relationships, allowing money to flow from one person to, to another through generosity and merit. In fact, the word currency which we use to describe money derives from the Latin correr, meaning to run. It has given us our modern term for the current in a river or an electrical current or a common currency of ideas. Money is designed to move around, to flow dynamically between people, whether through a monthly wage, a commercial exchange, or in the form of a gift. Money loses its purpose as a catalyst for creative exchange when it is allowed, it is allowed to stagnate merely accruing interest in a bank or becoming a number on the screen. Nine times out of ten, therefore, God chooses to provide for our needs, whether financial, medical or emotional, naturally through people, not supernaturally through angelic visitations, manna from heaven or cash materialising in cupboards. This may be less mysterious, 
but it is actually ultimately far more creative and relational. And what he says about this flow of money between people and that relational aspect of it, I really like that. And it reminds me of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who used everything he had, his time, his abilities, and his money to encourage others and to love God. And the ripple effect that that must have had on the lives of the other people around him and the joy that it produced in heaven I think that's really worth thinking about. So again this week, I'd just like us to have a little time of quiet prayer now. It could be loud prayer if you want it to be. Um, but just some prayer now, because it's not about what I say. It's about what's God saying to you. You know, I just encourage you to ask him what he thinks. And listen to what he says. finish with prayer. I'm reminded of um, the story of the prodigal son when the father says to the prodigal son's brother, but you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Thank you, Lord, that you are always with us and everything you have is ours. Thank you. Thank you that we don't have to worry about having enough because you don't forget us. And Lord, we want to be more like you. We want to increase in looking more like our Father. Thank you that your generosity is out of this world. And actually, it does look foolish. It doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. But we want to be fools. In that, yeah, we want to be, we want to be wise in your eyes and wise in the kingdom, but we want to not be bothered about being fools on this world, because it's not working. Thank you, Lord, that you are so lovely. And just grow us, Lord, to be more like you, and to welcome in and usher in more and more of your kingdom, every aspect of it, Lord that you would restore us and creation back to what it was always meant to be. Amen.